Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. not going to work uh, uh, for many, many years. So it's always wonderful to come back uh, to Phoenix and to have a chance to study in with many of you whom, whom I've studied for years. Um, so let me start out with uh, the fo- following observation. Um, a number of years ago, I, I, when I got into this topic, I did a, uh, some uh, observation and I examined a bunch of typical introduction to Judaism books you know, meant to try to explain what Judaism is. And most of those books uh, included sections like, is true of typical also of books in the study of almost any religion, a section on the ideas or, the, or they usually use the word beliefs of a particular religion. And they have a section often on the uh, behaviors or rituals or, or something like that, the, the behavioral aspect. And they often have a section on the uh, social organizational nature of the religion. Does it have, does it have, what, what do they pray? What kind of institutions do they have? Who governs those institutions? Those, those tend to be the ways in which people would typically introduce religion. So to understand a religion, all you have to know, know is uh, what, do you, what do you think and what do you do? And sort of, and where you do it and sort of who, how do you get to be a member of that place, or how do you get to go there? Um, and one of the things that struck me is, of course, that's not real life. And there's a dimension that is so much part of uh, human life in general, and also uh, a major part of uh, religious life, uh, is that is the area of what we call human emotions. And it is the case that... Uh, different cultures seem to value different kinds of emotions in different ways. Um, there's a fancy word people talk about, this, they call it the emotionology of, of a culture. Uh, and uh, some people, some cultures, it's okay to cry. Some cultures, it's okay to be angry, uh, to be sad, or where and when, how you express it, what does it mean to feel that emotion, etc. So that sort of, um, it turns out that this whole area of the study of emotions have uh, received uh, tremendous uh, flourishing, uh, in, uh, especially in the universities in the last 20 to 25 years, in a whole range of fields, from psychology to anthropology, uh, to history, to the study of literature, uh, women and gender studies, on and on and on. All of a sudden, it seems like we've discovered that an important aspect of human life is um, how different 
whether they were talking about religions, you could talk about political systems, you could talk about sports, um, that somehow we, we clearly uh, react to, and perhaps I would say are motivated to do certain things, not solely because we find them, you know, that was a great argument made, and I find your point convincing, and therefore I assent to the correctness of your claim. Uh, that, that model, not, not in any way to denigrate the value of careful argumentation and the bringing of evidence and getting people to agree to a proposition or a claim on the basis of the quality of the, uh, the argument you can uh, advance for the particular claim, surely that's a value. But I think most of us in our lives uh, recognize that uh, people, and especially groups, uh, are motivated uh, to do things and then turn out, turn around and actually do certain things because of their, the emotional dimension of, of the, uh, the stimuli to which they're exposed. Um, there's a lot more to be said on this. I don't want to give a whole discussion on the nature of emotions and are they rational or not. Yes, they're very rational in some ways. They reflect things we value and don't value. Right. If you, uh, I mean, I'll just give you the simple example. If I, um, you know, I'm walking around, if I'm walking in my kitchen and knock over a, b a bottle of spaghetti sauce, right? I, I might get angry because of myself for being a klutz, right, and for messing up the floor, but it, I surely would not have the same reaction to if I was walking like a klutz and knocked over my great grandparents' crystal. And, and broke it. I may still also feel angry and, dis and upset at myself, but I'll probably also be quite sad. So that, that is simply a very brief way of just illustrating the, the point that there's surely there, the philosophers talk about, we make appraisals, evaluations of certain situations, and that in turn shapes our emotional responses to those situations as well. So that, that's kind of the, uh, the premise here. And clearly uh, Jewish life has a great deal of emotional dimensions to it. So let me just start out just to get, uh, because I, I don't like to talk at people, I'd much rather get a little bit of conversation. Think of some Jewish object and tell me what you feel when you either see that object or see that object being used under certain occasions, right? It, it could be, you know, there's many of them. A chuppah at, at a wedding, Torah scroll, right? Uh, now, of course, our reactions, our reactions might vary where and when and how all these things are presented. But if you reflect on your own lives, tell me a little bit about certain Jewish objects and how you respond to them. Um, uh, my candlesticks, okay, and I have two sets gotten at two different times, a tall, very sleek, modern set, and then another set of little, small, they look like Jerusalem, I got them in Israel. And they're so important emotionally to me that I have actually asked my boys to make sure that when I die, I don't care who gets which set or if they break them up, but they should know how emotionally attached and what do you feel when you either look at them or when you light them? Connection to something that is real inside of me, that is emotionally <laughs> okay. very living inside of me. Thank you. Excellent. Sure that they were going to use them 
Um, yeah, you know, that's another story, but, um, but they both react in a way that they recognized what that meant to me. So I was pleased at that. So you said Torah. Right. It's like an auction. You say something, you're in trouble. Okay. <laughs> well, take, for example, uh, uh, to, uh, our reaction to, uh, in, at the time of the Holocaust, to the, to the destruction of Torahs. Uh, okay. Uh, and, and what that meant to us as a people, not just, not just individually. And then, of course, there's uh, how we view the Torah uh, during uh, uh, services. It's uh, walked around the congregation. Uh, we touch it and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and kiss it, make, make it personal. Mm -hmm. Do most of you feel terribly emotionally moved when the Torah is paraded through the congregation? Mm -hmm. I think it's more moving when you hold it yourself. Oh, if you hold it yourself. I mean, so it's interesting you said that. Uh, yeah. It's more personal. Uh, and, of course, there are some people, uh, it tends to be, uh, of course, uh, women, who, who at some point in their life for the first time would have had an aliyah mm -hmm. to the Torah, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if anybody had that kind of an experience. Mm -hmm. What did it feel like? You know, I wasn't expecting it, the emotion, but when mm. I if, held it up, it mm -hmm. was okay. astonishing. Okay. Robin. I'm a proud recipient of my great-grandmother's Kiddush cup. Ah. Mm. Uh, and it brings me back not only to my grandmother, but my great-grandmother. Okay. And it's something that, of all the things in my home, one of the things I really value. Wow. Everything else is, is replaceable. Nothing else. This is not. Because it's part of my family. <laughs> it goes back to somebody who was, who was born in Ireland in the 1800s. Yeah. You know? So it's real. It reminds me last night I was watching uh, Antique Roadshow, and they had uh, something like that where somebody came into whatever the object was and asked for an appraisal. It turned out the thing was worth $100,000. But the person said, I'm really not interested in the value because it's the kind of connection I feel to that because it was some great, 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 great ancestor's uh, object and there's this deep sense of attachment and, and uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it counts as a religious object, but uh, I think the Kotel. Oh, uh, sure, uh, sure. You know, my first trip to Israel, you had to go to the you, you, you felt this, even though you'd never been there before. You felt this attachment, and I think we all feel that when we go to church. Anybody go to the hotel and not feel like that? Ah, it's a bunch of stones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's actually just a landfill project, so it, which it really is. But leave that aside. Yeah. Well, actually, I felt it was like Hollywood the last time I was there. There were all these tourists taking pictures all over. Like when I went to ah. Kever, when I went to Kever Rachel, it was a whole different feel, but, but ah. the hotel was sort of like, you well, know, it was around Hanukkah time, it was like, you know. Tell me where you felt at the Kever Rachel, at the tomb of Rachel. Well, I, I, I was very moved. I had just lost my brother, and his name was Benjamin. Ah, was wow. Very, I was emotionally moved. It was still in the Shloshim, and I, I cried nonstop at Kever Wow, that's a, this is a very, with the idea, right, yeah, for me, of course, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, and so, wow, that really made that a really moving. One or two more, yeah. I think that the Kotel has mixed 
feelings for women. Ah, sure. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, mm-hmm. like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybatemadrash.org and donating to Valley Bait Midrash to support the expansion if, if of meaningful Jewish education. Right. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry. That, that sense, you know, the, of, of, of the holiness being detracted. Yeah. I see these objects as kind of anchors to our belief in the emotional um, aspects of our belief. It's our, you know, as we, it's, it's a visual anchor for our, our Judaism and what it means to us and how we respond to it. And that's part of, for me, the emotional. So, so let me pick a, uh, pick a holiday. Uh, what do you think about some of the objects on a Seder plate or a, or, or a Pesach? Any particular? Like could be the orange. Could be the orange. Some people have to very, even though the whole story is vodka for according to Susanna Heschel, but we'll leave that aside. Does it, this is a bad choice of words. Does, does matzo move you? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I had it thought, that, that was not planned, but I just. <laughs> that gives you, just had, you, had, you just had to get through that. Huh? Yeah, no, but seriously. I mean, is there anything where. Not, nothing, no particular triggers, eating harosa. Well, I think the, the, the first matzah of, the, of, of Pesach, that first bite, first bite, that first bite is very special. After that, eh, but the first <laughs> one, it's like that makes it real. Yeah, you'd be happy to know, according to rabbinic law, you only have to eat matzah one day. Yes. You've said, there's no requirement to eat it all. You can't eat chametz, but you don't have to eat matzah more than one day. And the rabbis had a very odd way of how they got to that point, <laughs> but but that's they maybe they already recognized the uh, the impact this had, right? Yeah, uh, Cheryl. Um, years ago, when the Precious Legacy toured the United States, and you know, and then we were in Prague, and, and I mean, you, when you see that the importance of those things, because these are the things that the um, Jews took with them when they were herded to the camps. I mean, they took mm. these objects that had meaning to them and had were grounding them in who they are. Mm-hmm. They were never giving up who they are because they took the menorah or they took the, a seedor or they took a kiddush cup or something like that. Okay. Uh, uh, Sander, I think. Yeah. I, I was going behind you, Barry, to, to stand for a second. So Sander itself So did anybody feel uh, emotions of, I don't know, I mean, theoretically, one should feel joyful and appreciative that we are free. Mm-hmm. But does that really 
happen. Especially as you're scrubbing the food from the kitchen and making nebuli, that that's another dimension that kind of. You know, most of the time at the table, I feel like you know, I got to get things running. I got to get the food on the table. Mm -hmm. I got to get this, that, I got to get. Mm. But a few years ago, we were at a conference at one of the Catholic university colleges in California, which is before Passover and Easter, and there were these flyers up. You know, the, you know, come to the model Seder run, run by Father so and so. And I felt incredibly angry. Oh. <laughs> They're stealing your Seder? Stealing, stealing our, you know, yeah, that's another whole interesting topic for a different night of Jewish Christian right? Barry, and then we'll go back there and we'll stop that one. Talking about emotional responses, uh, sometimes it's not just objects, okay? You go to uh, the Holocaust Museum. Sure. All right. And that's, you know, evokes such, you know, such a, a, a powerful set of emotions. Just going there and, you know, reading and seeing objects in, in many cases. Wow. Um, sure. So that, that's another almost uh, off the charts emotion that you can But it's also the objects that you're looking at. Yeah. When, when we were at Yad Vashem the one time, there was a young woman being, who had to be escorted through out because she was just breaking down. Yeah, no, of course. Last comment. I used to go to a Seder that lasted all night till dawn. As it says, the four sages, right? And, and everybody would fall asleep at some point. But then when I go outside and the sun was coming up, it was like so liberating to go into the light after this whole night of, of sitting and sleeping and eating and whatever. <laughs> it's very it's thing. You mentioned that. The, the Mishnah, the, you know, the first rabbinic text, actually the last Mishnah, the 10th chapter, which lays out the earliest model for the Seder, the last Mishnah says, if you're at a Seder, and people doze off. So long as some one person's awake, you can continue. But if everybody falls asleep, you're done. <laughs> so, so you see that human, human uh, biology hasn't changed all that much here in many ways as it relates to Sidurim. So we'll leave that uh, aside. So I wanted to look tonight with you, as you can see, um, at the shofar. And not, not so much, obviously, just seeing a shofar. But share with me some what you think, feel, when you hear the shofar sounded uh, on Rosh Hashanah. Or, yeah, uh, would describe what you sense the congregation seems to be go going through sometimes. Any particular, do you sense it's, uh, is it kind of just, ah, the guy's literally blowing his horn? Or, or is there some kind of an emotional resonance to that experience? It's a continuity We've been hearing it blown for thousands of okay. years. Okay, so you give sense of what motion is that? I don't know. It goes feeling continuity. Pride. 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 Okay, pride. Pride sense of community sense of yeah. okay. Security. Connection. Connection. Relief. Relief. Okay. Thrilling. Thrilling, yeah. Someone does a really good job. It's, you feel it in your kishkas that it's exciting. Okay. Does, does anybody feel... Um, if, if one of the themes of Rosh Hashanah, at least that it developed over time, is the notion of tshuva, of 
of repentance, but I put it in a broader sense of introspection, self-examination, self-reflection, you know, thinking about where am I, what have I done this year, where do I want to go next year. Now, whether you, I don't know if those aspects are in any way part of your Rosh Hashanah experience, uh, but thinking in those terms, if that's one of the intended outcomes, theoretically, of a Rosh Hashanah experience, that's also to be part of community and all those other things. But there seems to be a very personal uh, dimension that the liturgy constantly talks about, of course, more so on Yom Kippur, with the ideas of, of uh, you know, doing atonement for our sins. Does the shofar in any way occasion any kind of feelings that move you to some kind of an introspection? I think that if you're in the right frame of mind, it's a sound that you feel it touches you in the heart. Okay? So if you have that sensation, it could open you up, mm -hmm. as Joel is asking about. Sure. And then Barry. Uh, synagogue, we have several multi generational shofar blowers, and to me, that is very the when you say Lador Vador, I mean, these mm. you know, 10, 12, 14 year old kids who are up there with their parents blowing the shofar right along mm -hmm. with them. I mean, it gives you know, it gives you hope, mm, okay? Oh, so it's a feeling of hope, optimism, you know, um, okay. was several classes where we went through a discussion of teshuva in mm -hmm. preparation because it was the three, four weeks mm -hmm. in front of it. And so that when you heard it that first time, it sort of brought all those pieces back together. Mm -hmm. You know, in a sense of, okay, now the work begins. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, uh, that's, there's a whole month of Elul where ah. it's for a whole month before Rosh Hashanah. Right. And, but also, I guess, the most, one of the most moving times for me, and often it's, it's boring for me now, maybe I'm jaded, was in a shul where for Tepia, Godola, and Yom Kippur, everybody who had a chauffeur took it out yeah. and yeah. it together. Yeah. And it was really very powerful. It can be very uplifting, moving, right? I mean, I've been at shuls where... You know, they, t we, we, uh, they turn the lights down and they make Kabbalah and everybody does Debbie Friedman, la la la, and holds hands, right? No, it's, it's a beautiful experience and they, they pass out uh, the, the things that light up when you hit them, whatever you call that, right? And then somebody holds up a big Kabbalah candle and then at the end you hear from all kinds of people in the congregation. It really is, can be a very... Uh, moving experience in many ways, engendering, I would suggest, even a whole range of, uh, of emotions, including that sense of whether it's a feeling of humility, of being part of something larger than oneself, and there are all dimensions uh, to this. I'll take one last comment, then I want to move on from here. One feeling that uh, it occurred to me as I was listening to everyone is it's startling. Ah. It's like a, it's like, ah. um, a, uh, an alarm. Alarm bell. It's like an alarm bell. Like trumpet waking you up. Exactly. So, so I, I, uh, so I, I, well, I to, to set this up, and now I want to move forward in this. Uh, as you heard, I, I was actually working on issues of um, emotions for a long time, and uh, there was a, this is how you end up doing things. So I've written a number of papers on a variety of emotions, 
and there was a call for, well, ASU has this relationship with the, the universities in Australia, uh, and there was a conference, there's a whole group in Australia uh, that's dedicated to the study of the history of emotions, uh, particularly in the Middle Ages. I actually am not a medievalist. I live, I'm, I'm, I'm going centuries earlier in antiquity, uh, in the early rabbinic period. I know some things about medieval period, but I had to figure out how to make, I said, ah, I want to go to Australia. I, I have money put aside. I want to propose a paper for this conference. Uh, and I was thinking, and it was on, uh, the conference was on uh, religion, emotions, and material objects. It was, uh, so I proposed this paper on, uh, as you can see the title here, The Emotional Resonance of the Shofar, and the preacher's voice I'll get to maybe later if we have a chance. And um, so I went to the conference. The papers were actually fascinating, and uh, most of them, except for one other person, were around Christianity, which had been fascinating about artwork and all kinds of things. Um, so that's how I sort of got into, uh, from my work on emotion, I said, oh, I, let's see, what Jewish material object could I think about that I know something about that actually I could really examine what do we know about uh, how uh, rabbinic sources, biblical rabbinic sources understood what is this about the chauffeur? What is the purpose of blowing the chauffeur? There's also a, a personal, I was thinking about it as I was coming here, the, the first actually job I ever had in the Jewish community uh, beyond, you know, I, would, I could read, read davening and read Torah, things like that, but I actually was hired to, when I was growing up, I think I was 15 years old, to be the chauffeur blower at our shul. <laughs> so, but uh, I got up and I did okay. And then I, I would say, So I blew inside and nothing came out. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, that, so I, I got much better at it over the years, but uh, that was one of those moments. So I, how did they react to your paper? Oh, they found it interesting. And, and so actually what happened was uh, I was talking to this colleague of mine in the Academy of Jewish Religion who's a historian of Jewish music, and he had just published this piece, a short piece in an obscure journal on the shofar as a symbol of Jewish identity, uh, particularly as evidenced in certain iconography, in, in coins, in synagogues. If you've been to ancient synagogues, there's a, the shofars appear with other ritual objects, particularly those associated with the temple in Jerusalem. And they appeared in 4th, 5th, 6th century synagogues. You have a shofar, a lulav, um, um, a censer, uh, or, or a shovel to remove the, that was used to remove the, um, the, the ashes from the altar. And these appear, appear in any number of things. So he happened to write this paper. We started talking. So we came up with this idea for this book on the uh, uh, shofar in Jewish uh, history and in Jewish music. And uh, as a very interesting project because beyond, you know, some are on the shofar and Bible, shofar and in Sephardic culture and all kinds of things like that. But he's a musician, so the other half of the book's going to be on the shofar in film, the shofar in opera, the shofar in comics, in TV. I mean, there's actually interesting aspects of how this, it, it, this thing got used as a musical instrument. Anyways, so um, what I'd like to do is look at, start out by looking at a number of biblical texts quickly that talk about the shofar, it gives us a sense of what the, what the shofar was understood to be in biblical times, and then particularly move to the rabbinic sources and see, why do we even blow it? What's the purpose of blowing a shofar on Rosh Hashanah? 
And I think I can be able to demonstrate that that itself is not a simple question. And in, in discerning what is the purpose of blowing a shofar, one of the key aspects that arises is that it's to occasion certain kind of emotional responses by, well, I'll leave you to figure out on a part of whom in a minute. So here we'll start with this text. Uh, I'm just going to run through a bunch of these. A lot of these, some may be familiar to you, some not so familiar. The first text is from the book of Amos. Uh, when a shofar is sounded in a town, shall the people not tremble? So clearly one of the early uh, uh, ideas of blowing a shofar is to instill fear. Well, more than just attention. It gets your attention, but also it's a kind of a sound that if you hear it in certain occasions, and you particularly know it might be used especially uh, to when troops were called to battle, right? If you're sitting, if you're whether you're the fight, being the one being called to marshal together, or the one's going to be attacked, uh, that may occasion a great deal of fear when you hear that kind of sound. And clearly, you know certain kinds of musical sounds occasion a great deal of trepidation and fear in people. Uh, just listen to the score of any mu- movie. And obviously, the, the music is chosen very carefully, and a lot of times it's subliminal. We're not really thinking about it, right? But it's there to, to uh, move us in certain ways. So here's a biblical text where it's clearly known that the shofar really served as a way to get people to pay attention and to instill fear. Next text is from this—I'm um, just going to run through these, and then I'll stop. Next text is from the, uh, the Revelation at Sinai. Right, And in that passage, it says, On the third day in the morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the market, a mountain, and a very loud blast of the shofar, and the people in the camp trembled. Right, Obviously, the whole fancy word, theophany, appearance of God, right? Thunder and lightning and all this stuff in the shofar blast is described as leading to a moment of fear. Keep that in mind. This is, this is one motif. The next text I won't uh, read, I think most of you know, from Joshua, right? The story of the defeat of Jericho, and they march around the city. And then um, it, it all of a sudden uh, says, right, uh, the people, the, in the, halfway in the passage, on the seventh round, as the priest blew the shofar wrote, Joshua commanded, shout, for the Lord has given the city. So the people shouted when the shofarot was sounded, when the people heard the sound of the shofarot, the people raised the mighty shot, that shouldn't say shot, shout, and the walls collapsed. Now, whether, you know, exactly what caused the walls to collapse as they understand it, was it God's direct intervention? Is there some kind of a magical action here? Is it the shofar, the people's, right, people shouting? Um, that's not exactly clear here, but in some senses, this is a, a, a occasion uh, probably the people in Jericho weren't uh, sitting there just uh, minding their own business, having a good time at the, when this is all happening. And clearly this is also a moment of uh, maybe shofar symbolizes power also in this, in this uh, text. Uh, Psalms, raise a child to the Lord. All the earth shall break into joyous songs of praise. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and the, and the lyre and the melodious uh, and melodious song with trumpets and the blasts of the shofar, raise a shout before the Lord, the King. 
clearly shofar here is a symbol of joy. Right? It's a, you listen to a kind of music we're hearing that was to instill a sense of joy. Hallelujah. Another psalm, right? Hallelujah. Praise the God of the sanctuary. Praise him in his, in his sky, in his stronghold. Praise him with the best, the blast of the shofar. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Let all that breathe praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Right? That's the last of the 150th psalm, right? After Ashray in the morning service, we have all the series of psalms, and it ends with that. Right? We always see lots of to- songs are sung to that. To, a lot of music is used to cast that particular passage, and it's often very upbeat and joyous. And obviously here, the shofar, <laughs> unlike in the other passage, is also, it has almost antithetical kinds of, uh, it can instill almost the opposite kind of emotions. On a certain occasion, heard in a certain way, it, it's meant to instill fear. And in other occasions, blown in a certain way, it can instill joy. Now, I'm not sure that's that different from any other instrument, right? You can play a trumpet, and depending what you're playing, you can elicit a whole range of reactions to hearing a particular instrument and how it's played. Okay. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Isaiah, uh, uh, this is, um, and this may have to do with, by the way, why we bought the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur. And in that day, a great shofar shall be sounded, and the strayed who are in the land of Assyria shall come and worship at the holy mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem. And this in time is understood to be a symbol of the great messianic redemption. The shofar will be sounded, and everybody will return to Jerusalem with no politics. And, um, and, and everything will be wonderful. Right? And, and so there, too, it's a, sound, a sign of joy and triumph, right, and, and restoration, etc. One last, another text, and here we actually have a legal text. None of these texts are exactly what we call laws. These are all kind of passages up until now, which describe occasions playing the shofar, but doesn't sort of like mandate them. It's a psalm, it's not exactly mandating that to be done. Well, here's a mandating text. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years will give you the total of 49 years. Then you shall sound the shofar blast, shofar teruah, in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. So actually at the end of Yom Kippur, in the 50th year, the Jubilee year, this text mandates you're supposed to blow, blow what's called shofar teruah. I didn't go yet through the, the Hebrew here. Uh, the Day of Atonement. You shall have the shofar sounded throughout your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year. You shall proclaim release for the land of inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Right? Obviously, a symbol of the restoration of everyone back to their fa- family plot, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's actually the uh, uh, text that mentions blowing the shofar on the 10th day of the month, but only once every 50th year. That, and it's actually, it's not clear historically when the practice of blowing the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur started. It's probably medieval. It, it's not in rabbinic, early rabbinic sources of blowing the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur, but they use this text in a certain ways. The next two passages um, from the Bible um, 
uh, excuse me, uh, sorry, it's, it's numbers, number nine, number eight, which is ten, taken from Bar 10, actually is not about the shofar, but about a different instrument, the two trumpets, the two silver trumpets. I, I won't read this with you, but in time the rabbis will say, the trumpets and the shofar, they're all the same, but actually, biblically, they're actually used <laughs> differently, and we'll, we'll leave it at, at that. Numbers 9 and 10, okay, so where's Rosh Hashanah in all this, right? Because I say shofar to you, the first thing I assume would come to mind is, when do we blow it? Rosh Hashanah, right? Okay, well, so the first thing you can learn is there's no holiday called Rosh Hashanah in the Bible, right? So it says, speak to the Israelites thus, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, seventh month is the month of Tishrei, I mean, there are different ways we count the year, but by month, start in Nisan, which is when Pesach occurs, and seventh month is Tishrei. The first day of the seventh month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. Zichron Teruah. Zichron Teruah. We score Zecher is to remember. Teruah is some kind of a blast. Exactly what kind of blast? We don't know. Some of these other texts use a different word when it says sound the shofar, it uses the word taka, right? Which sounds like the word tekiah. And those are the two words in the Bible associated with the shofar, taka or teruah. And they're almost onomatopoeic. Well, that, we'll see in a minute. They don't exactly what... How, the Bible authors may have understood what each note refers to, but it's not exactly clear from the text what the difference is between exactly how you sound the tekiah and exactly how you sound the teruah. Are they synonyms? Are they different words? Right? This will become an issue in time. Okay, so, but it, that's one text. And Numbers 29, one says, In the seventh month and the first day of the month, you shall observe a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall observe it as they when the horn is sounded. Yom Teruah. So, so what's interesting is, of course, there's no name for Rosh Hashanah in the Bible. It's called the first day of the seventh month, which became Rosh Hashanah somewhere along the way. And um, it also says you should have a day of Teruah. Exactly, technically, you could say, well, what do you make the Teruah on? Because you could make it on these horns, the silver horns. But it, somewhere it became understood, and maybe that's the original meaning of the text, you shall sound this teruah on the shofar, right? So, so it's interesting. Biblically, we don't have Rosh Hashanah. It's not so clear you would blow the shofar, but it is a yom teruah, a day of blast of some kind of an instrument. Why? From these texts, right? These are the two passages that speak of Rosh Hashanah. Any understand? What would be the purpose of this day? How about calendaring it? Okay. Calendar. Right, I mean, it's, it's very opaque. We don't quite know what it's doing. It's a day of remembering, remembering by a, sh a blast, right? But it doesn't, it's not terribly clear what the whole purpose of this day was, nor why we would blow the horn on that day, right? That, I'm just showing biblically, it's kind of unclear. But there is a connect, there is a uh, neuroscience connection to this. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, when you have... Uh, Multiple stimuli mm -hmm. helps to remember things. So uh, blowing a horn or a shofar mm -hmm. uh, uh, in connection with 
a holiday with uh, mm -hmm. a, a calendar or, mm -hmm. or something uh, uh, helps us to to make uh, uh, to, to remember and to recall something. It's almost like a mnemonic, and but but a mental sure. It's sure. part of our brain. Sure. Well, exactly. I mean, if I showed you matzah, you'll think of Pesach. Mm -hmm. Right. Right? I mean, that's the whole, where we started. Certain objects occasion certain memories. I, I didn't speak about collective memory here, the whole idea of memory, which are then connected with certain experiences, which may engender certain moods. Right? That's the whole complexity of the actual lived religion is much more complex than simply thinking things and you know, believing things and doing things, but it's how all this gets packaged into some kind of uh, an element, whether there's a you know, neuroscience, how that fits in, I, I'm very sympathetic that that needs to be taken into account as well. Let me move forward here, because uh, I want to get to some of the interesting texts here. Uh, text 12, happy are the people who know the sound of the shofar, the yodei teruah, ashrei ha'am yodei teruah, this verse is cited after the shofar is blowing, blown now in the liturgy. Uh, this is a line that said, then, then you go into the regular ashray. So this is one line from Psalm uh, 89. Um, another verse that becomes very important for the rabbis, Allah Elohim b'truah Adonai b'kol shofar. God, Elohim, ascends amidst the sounding of the shofar. The Lord, Adonai, to the blast of the shofar. You'll see in a minute what the rabbis do with that verse. Bear in mind, the rabbis are not happy with redundancy. And even though biblical poetry is built on what's called parallelism, you see here, you the verse has what's called two sticks, or two parts of it. And the second part largely seems to repeat the first. The rabbis do not parse verses as if the second part is simply saying the same thing. Just keep that in mind. And the last line we may have a chance to get to um, and it relates to how preachers in the Middle Ages came to understand their role. The prophet Isaiah says, O Isaiah prophet, cry with full throat with restraint. Raise your voice without restraint. Raise your voice like a shofar. Declare to my people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sin. And we may not have time to get there, but just imagine if a medieval preacher thinks of this verse speaking to them and sees their preaching to be analogous to the sounding of the shofar with the purpose enunciated here. Is that both Jewish and non-Jewish preachers? Um, it's not used as much. I didn't see Christian usage of this verse, but it's an interesting question. Uh, but clearly, and the kind of sermon you're going to get is not, hey, aren't we all wonderful and having a great time being together here, right? That's not one that's going to declare to people. But you could see already, within certain understandings of the purposes of Rosh Hashanah, uh, um, calling us to self-introspection, right, how this verse can become interpreted in a certain way. So now, now I want to, any reactions to the biblical text before we move to the rabbinic ones? Well, uh, you were just saying that you're not sure of you know, Christian use of, of this last This particular verse. Yeah. Um, I would suggest that uh, John Brown did. In, 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 in Actually, I do know Christian preachers did use verses like this to, to think of themselves also. Essentially, what's happened is they take on the mantle of prophet's role. Mm -hmm. Right, with the decline and absence of prophets, then medieval preachers come to see themselves in the same role as the biblical prophets as are described as having. 
And that's a whole interesting uh, dimension we may have a little bit of time to look at. So along come the rabbinic texts, right? And some of you um, may know this at the bottom of page two. The first rabbinic work, Mishnah Rosh Hashanah, right? The track, you know, Mishnah is divided into tractates. Tractates are on different topics like Rosh Hashanah, Shabbat, uh, Mikvaot, uh, Shabbat, um, uh, um, tithes, etc. So the, there's a tractate called Rosh Hashanah, and here's the first Mishnah. Such a Jewish idea. There are four New Years. You mean one's not good enough? No, there are four New Years, right? And the first of Nisan, and it goes through all these, right? You know some of these, right? Uh, the fourth of them is the New Year for trees called Tubishvat, right? The other one's the first of Elul, right? So it says on the first of Tishrei is a new year for reckoning of years, for sabbatical years, and the jubilee year. Not for counting months, but for these purposes, right, this is how you, uh, you start with Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei, okay? Uh, four times during the year, uh, at four times, this is Mishnah 1-2, at four times during the year, the world is judged. On Passover for grain, so each, each holiday has a certain meaning, but it's also a time of judgment. On Rosh Hashanah, top of page three, all who have come into the world, called Ba'e'alam, uh, come into the world, pass before him like a military troop, as it is stated, he who fashions the heart of them all who discerns their doings. So clearly, in the earliest reference to rabbinic text to Rosh Hashanah, here you have the notion of Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, right? We are all passed before God and a time for our, uh, our lives to be uh, assessed. Clearly, the, the prayer we, many of us know that best expresses this is the prayer that's traditionally in the Musaf service, the Unatana Tokef prayer, right? right? And we... But if you read the, it's a medieval text, and some of you know the whole story about how the guy who wrote it was attacked, and he had his legs cut off and brought into the synagogue. <laughs> Actually, you can see the pathos of the whole story as it's trying to move you, right? Whether it's apocryphal or not, it's irrelevant, but that idea of Rosh Hashanah being a time of judgment. Now, if that's what it's really all about, why would we blow a shofar? Which of the verses that we've read from the Bible would seem to be relevant? Okay. Oh, we'll get there. Good. Good. I said trembling. 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 Right? I mean, Rosh Hashanah is actually a complicated holiday because there's a time of joy, of renewal of life, right? There is an element of that. But it also starts the 10 day of repentance traditionally. And clearly the shofar, I mean, you could, if you took this as the theme, the purpose of the shofar is to get you to, hey, hey, this is, it's like, we'll see the metaphor of calling the court in session, right? And the, and the record books are going to be open. And okay, Mishnah Russia. now here's, but the Mishnah, of course, didn't stop. All of a sudden we start hearing all kinds of rules about the shofar. Mishnah 3.5, the shofar blown in the holy temple on, on Rosh Hashanah 
was of a wild goat with its mouthpiece overlaid with gold, and two trumpets were on the side. This is how they describe what happened in the temple, not in synagogues, in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jubilee is like Rosh Hashanah with regard to the blowing of the shofar and the benedictions. Rabbi Judah, of course, disagrees and says on Rosh Hashanah they use curved horns for the males from the ram and on Jubilee's wild goats. And we're going to see in time, all of a sudden, they're going to start making a big deal about the shape. And what should the shape engender in the person who observes a certain kind of shofar? Is that irrelevant, or is that also supposed to be communicative of some kind of uh, meaning? Mishnah 4.7, text 3. The one who leads the prayer service on the festival, okay. The second prayer leader, uh, the one reading the Musaf, the additional prayer services, causes the shofar to be bone. But in the other occasions, the hollow, the first one leading it, the shacharit does the hollow. This is actually a complicated question. Like where in the, uh, you can, there's a beginning of a, what the rabbis did, began to standardize liturgy. Well, the temple was standing, there's no standardized liturgy. What you did is you went to the primary way of relating to God was what was going on in the temple and the offering of sacrifices. People could pray, but the whole development of Jewish prayer and its standardization begins here with rabbinic Judaism. And how much role the rabbis played in Jewish society is a whole separate question, not my topic for tonight, probably very little at first, but they, they, they wrote things that in time became authoritative. And um, they say that the shofar should be sounded in the second prayer service. So, uh, but that is, uh, traditionally, of course, you have the shacharit, the morning service, Torah reading, Musaf, after that. We actually, though, as you know, traditionally blow shofar two different times at least. There's the, what's called the, traditionally called the sitting shofar service, which is after the reading of the Torah, the Haftorah service, they would, people, but we actually stand for it, but the, but the earliest text is supposed to sit for it, and Sephardic Jews actually sit for that. Ashkenazic Jews stand. And then during the Musaf, either, depending how you do Musaf, some places, even during the silent Musaf, they blow the shofar, and the repetition, they blow the shofar. Anyways, this is about, we'll see it in a while, you know, why do we have two different services? And we're going to also learn that at first they used to do blowing the shofar in shachri, the rabbis imagined. But then they moved it to Musaf, and they'll, they'll explain why. Right? Okay. Mishnah 4 9. And here we see the beginning of, uh, okay, so what's the order of blowing the shofar in the, th in the three blasts of Tekiah, Teruah, Tekiah? That, now we understand the notes. Tekiah, Teruah, Tekiah. Ah, the length of the tekiah is three throughout, right? So three short notes equal one long note. The length of the truth, now here's where it gets confused. And you'll, you'll recognize the problem. What happened to Shafari? Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> the length of the teruah is three yivavot. But the meaning of that word is unclear. Though in the Talmud, uh, it comes to mean whimpers. The basic meaning of a yivava is the sound of a sort of a horn. A yivava is technically just a, a, a note of a, of a horn. It's not clear what kind of note. Okay, that's the trua is three yivavot. A parallel text in a different rabbinic document called Sifra says, what is the order of the blows, blast? He blows a tekiah, 
and then a trua and a tekia. He blows tekia, trua, tekia three times. Three sets of blasts add up to nine notes. Okay, the length of the tekia should be the same as the trua, and the length of the trua is three shivarim. All this is to say they don't know what a trua is. That's their problem. And that's why we end up with this very complicated set of shofar notes, right? If you think of it, we do tekia, we do tekia, shvarim, trua, tekia, tekia, shvarim, tekia, tekia, trua, tekia, because you'll see in a minute, they didn't know what the true art was equal to, and they had to figure out, we got to cover all our bases. That's the, really what, the, the, well, the, this texts are from around 200 of the Common Era. No, no, this is Palestinian. This is all Palestinian, the Mishnah, Sifra, these are Palestinian <laughs> rabbinic documents, thank you for asking, from around 200. But they already, in these texts, don't quite know what a trua is. They know you're supposed to have a tekiah and a tekiah and a trua in the middle, but they don't know what the trua is. Yeah? What, on, on Yom Kippur, the shofar's blown throughout, you know, throughout the day as... as the, and Russia shut out throughout the day. Right, but the one at the end of the... I mean, I've heard that... The, the Tikiya Gadola is the hundredth one or something. Oh, that's another whole issue, yeah. How do we get to a hundred and the, right? And this, if we have time, I explain all the ways in which over the course of the century, all this got became more complicated, particularly under the influence of Jewish Kabbalah. Changed a lot of the whole service. But okay, already you can sense here, they didn't know what a true was. Okay, um, Here's the first, an interesting comment, Sifra Numbers 77, number six. And on your joyous occasions, your fixed festivals and new moon days, you shall sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over your sacrifices and well-being. This is the Chatzotzrot. These are the trumpets, not the shofar. There shall be a reminder of you before your God. Remember the idea to remind God of us. I am the Lord your God. And the following Midrashic interpretation connects this verse to the three sections of the Musaf Amidah. Right? The Musaf Amidah traditionally has three sections, Malchiot, kingship, Zichronot, remembrances, uh, Shofarot, the Shofar sounds, which are often understood to be tied into uh, God's kingship, God's uh, uh, remembering of, of, of who we are in the covenant, and Shofarot in the liturgy symbolizes both the revelation at Sinai and the Shofar of the Great Redemption. That's, those are the themes of those three sections. Here's what this text says. Rabbi Nathan says, it is said, you should sound the trumpet, lower reference to the ram's horn. They shall serve as a reminder. This refers to the remembrances. I am the Lord your God. And I am the Lord your God, this refers to God's sovereignty. So he parses the verses to say, see, that verse actually tells us there's supposed to be three sections to Musaf. Uh, if, if so, why in Rosh Hashanah have the sages placed the verses for sounding of the shofar for God's sovereignty first, and then remembrance a second, and finally the ram's horn last? Right? The, the verse doesn't quite align with the sequence. The sense is this. First, accept him as king over you. 
right? We do malchiyot, we celebrate God's rulership. Then seek mercy from him so that you will be remembered by him. And with what shall be you remembered? With the shofar of cherut, of freedom. And the, shofar in, and the shofar indicates only freedom, as it is said. And in that day, a great shofar shall be sounded. This is the verse from Isaiah. So here, this is the end of the earliest strata of rabbinic texts. Why do we blow the shofar? Ah. Ah. Excellent. So now we look at the Babylonian Talmud. We won't have time to go through all these, but here's the Babylonian Talmud. Huh. So this is, right, it's edited in the 6th through 7th century in Babylonia, uh, though the sayings are assigned to people who, learned early, who lived earlier. Rabbi Yabahu was a third generation a sage. He asked, why do we blow the shofar of a ram? Like, you know, we've been doing this for a while, but why the heck do we do it? Well, here's the first explicit text that says the following, said the Holy One, blessed be he. Blow before me with a shofar of a ram so that I can remember in your behalf the binding of uh, uh, Isaac, the son of Abraham, and I will consider it as if you had bound yourself before me. So as you said, it just, uh, what's your name? Alan. Alan, as Alan just correctly said. The object, the, the audience who's supposed to hear the shofar in this text is God. And the purpose of blowing the shofar is to remind God of Isaac's willingness to be bound on the altar. And God will say, okay, you get what's called, there's a rabbinic notion called schut avot, the merits of the ancestors. Yeah, it's, it's one of those big inanis, right? <laughs> right? So we'll think about, we'll see this. In a, yes? What is this a quote from? Said the Holy One, blessed be he. Oh, the rabbis just, no, the rabbis just made that up. Oh, okay. They just put words, God, no, the rabbis are putting words in God's mouth, right? It's not, that text is not in the Torah. But clearly we have here already the notion that Isaac's willingness to be bound on the altar is connected with Rosh Hashanah, and that serves as a symbol of right, his dedication and our willingness to be tied to God and we accept God's kingship and judgment over us. All those themes are tied into this. So the rabbis in Midrash, in their exegesis, will put words into various biblical characters. Right. So um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So this, this is a rabbinic creation of what God must have been saying. You know, If you do this... So Isaac's merit becomes a chit for us that we can draw upon, right, when we wish to. Is this why you chant uh, the, the binding of Isaac? Yeah, it's all t tied together. And the whole, the liturgy, in the Musaf liturgy, the Zichronot section ends with uh, the liturgical paragraph is, and may you remember the binding willingness of Isaac to be bound upon the, upon the altar. Baruch blessed Lord of God, who remembers the covenant with the people of Israel. I've, obviously, if Isaac had died, there would be no people of Israel with whom the covenant would have been continued. Right? That's all tied up in that. 
Okay, let's move on to the next text. Rabbi Isaac, a third generation on Mora from the land of Israel, say, well, why do we found the Shofar on Rosh Hashanah? And they respond, duh, why do they blow the Shofar? God said, blow the Tekiah, right? No, 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 no. Rather, what he said was, why do we sound the Teruah? Ah, why sound the Teruah? God said it's a day of commemoration with Teruah. Weren't you paying attention when we learned these verses? And one said you're supposed to blow the horn, taka, and one says it's a day of Teruah? Ah, this is what he really meant. Rather, he was asking, why did they blow the tekiah and the trua while they are sitting and blow the tekiah and the trua while they are standing? Right? So remember I said there were two different shofar services. Why do you have to do it twice? And here's their answer. satan. In order to confound Satan. I was going to say, what the hell is that about? But that'd be that choice of words. <laughs> it's one of those dip twice things. Well, no, we'll see, the, we'll see in time what they do with this idea. This becomes a major idea. On the surface, what does it sound like? Well, okay, that's our way of labeling certain practices. In their world, what do they imagine is happening? Okay, now, so you have to, obviously the question we should ask is, how did the rabbis understand Satan? Satan. It's the adversary, it's the court, the, 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 the prosecuting attorney. Right, so the question is, right, well, how do the rabbis at this point understand Satan? Biblically, it's not the devil. It's, right, he's the, he's, the, he's the chief prosecutor, the guy who keeps a God honest, right? The most famous passage of that is the book of Job, right? And it seems like the rabbis, for the most part, at least here, haven't yet concocted a whole evil realm that will come in the medieval period. But here, there's some kind of somehow confusing Satan seems to be the idea. People aren't supposed to be moved so far. Either God or Satan. Text three. Rabbi Levi, the third generation of Moral of the land of Israel, the commandment of the Rosh Hashanah on the Jubilee and the Day of Atonement is fulfilled with curved horns and all the rest of the year with straight horns. The Gemara, the Talmud asks, why, but we have learned in a mission the Shofar Rosh Hashanah should be of a wild goat and straight. He levi-straighted his position in accordance with the view of Rabbi Judah. If you remember, he was the guy who said you should have a curved horn. But why a curved horn? On which issues do they disagree? Rabbi Judah, an anonymous view of the, uh, of the Mishnah. One master, Rabbi Judah, thinks that the more a person on Rosh Hashanah bends over, or some versions of the text have bends his mind, the better it is. At the, and at the conclusion of Yom Kippur, they should use a, a straight horn in his view, because the more a person straightens out, the better. But the other master, the anonymous view, thinks on Rosh Hashanah a person should be straight, and on Yom Kippur, a person should be bent. But clearly, they're parsing the shape of shofrot as indicative of the experience and the consciousness that the person who's seeing the shofar being used ought to have engendered by observing the shofar. 
So, so now beyond notes, we actually have physical shapes of shofarot become symbolic in their meaning and their intentionality. And this clearly is directed at the people, right? This is not God. This is somehow the shofar is supposed to have an impact on the people by observing at least its shape. Okay? Would that have been realistic? I mean, all I've always heard about is you should hear the sound of a shofar, not that you should be looking at the person ah. on the shofar and observing you know, which one they grabbed out of the cabinet. Uh, that's an excellent point. So, but, but there's technically the bracha we say is lishmoa kol shofar. Actually, it's not litkoa kol shofar. The, the way we say the blessing, blessed out the Lord of God has commanded us to hear. So it's not actually the sound. Whereas other things like we are, the blessing when you say, since we talk about matzah, it's alachilat matzah, we thank God to fulfill the commandment to eat the matzah. Here the mitzvah is to hear it. And you correctly observe, doesn't say anything about observing and seeing it. Yet, clearly, as is typical of religions, there's a tendency to symbolize, right? To find symbolic meaning in variety of aspects of any kind of ritual. So even though, and it could be multi, multi-sensorial, right? So you hear it, you see it, you're, you feel the community around you. If you think of what sensors, right? But I didn't explain, we didn't get into how senses, senses and emotion all interact with our brains and our thoughts, right? It's very complicated when you start trying to parse this. What is the nature of, quote, the experience at the time of having this experience. But they clearly think the shape matters as well. Text number four. Now we're back to this text about, well, what is the trua? It says three yavavot. But in the other text, it says it should be three broken notes. Said Abaye, in this, about the fo- meaning of the following biblical verse, the two s- texts disagree. For it is written, you shall observe it as a day when the horn is sounded. But the Aramaic translation of that, right, the Targum, you know, the Bible is translated into Aramaic. Notice how this exegesis is working. The Hebrew says one thing. The Aramaic says it should be Yivava, regarding the, and Yivava is used in the verse regarding the mother of Sisera. Anybody remember who the mother of Sisera is? <coughs> Right. So Sisera is the general who's defeated by Barak, who is motivated by Deborah. And there's this very powerful scene, right? Uh, right, Mount Tabor. And there's a very powerful end to uh, after Yael, the role of women's fasting here, but after Yael gets Sisera in the head with the tent peg after she served the milk, right? It's a very dramatic story. And there's this very f- scene of pathos. The mother of Sisra is standing, as it were, like on a whaler's, a widow's, whaler's, what do you used to call those? Widow, right? Looking out for her son to come back from battle. And it says there, right, through the window she looked and she cried, Yivava. One master thinks that the trua is like a trembling, a moaning sound. Hence, it speaks of broken outs. Shvarim. And the other master thinks that it refers to sobbing. So now they've understood this, the different meaning of teruah. Well, does it express moaning or sobbing? 
And now you have to think of this, you have mo notes of tekiya, which is a strong note, two tekiyot, framing, right, because it's tekiya, trua, tekiya, or whatever, however, and whatever this trua is, you have these two powerful strong notes framing notes that are meant to express, not clear to whom, because the text doesn't say who's supposed to hear the moaning or sobbing. Is the shofar doing the moaning or sobbing? Is the community supposed to be moved to moan and sob? And then, and the, and then the, and is that meant to be heard by God? So it's kind of interesting here. So and by the way, so how'd they solve the problem? Rabbi Abahu instituted in Caesarea. He was in doubt, right? What the Torah refers to. Is it about moaning or whimpering or sobbing? So they go through a whole series of discussions uh, and they're concerned about there's a whole problem of what's called uh, interrupting. If one part's not the real note, it would interrupt the real note, and then you want to fulfill the obligation of sounding the notes. There's a whole long discussion about this thing. So they, um, the text then resolved the challenge, but I'm reading the long paragraph, last two lines, by indicating that Rabbi Abau instituted three sets of notes, the ones we have now. Tchia, shvarim, trua, tchia, tchia, shvarim, tchia, tchia, trua, tchia. So then they asked the question, in light of this understanding, the Gemara asks, if so, one should do the opposite as well and sound tekiah teruah shvarim tekiah. Right? If, you, if you're worried about interrupting, maybe the real note is the other way. And the answer, generally, when a tragedy happens, he first moans and then he whimpers. So, I mean, it's, it's, so you can see here there's this kind of deeply emotionally laden sense that's beginning to emerge here with the shofar but I don't know when you hear those notes. No one said they hear whimpering or crying sounds. I, mean, I hear something about strong note of a tekiya. But it's interesting how they began to stand there. Right? I mean, that's like that's the way they understand it here. Now, I, 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 we don't have time here to go through all these, and you can read these. But I want, this is the text that Alan, uh, um, Alan made reference to. Uh, this is a later rabbinic document, uh, what's called a midrash, a homiletical midrash, not a legal text. And it's on, um, it's a, a, a text called Psiktadarav Kahana, which also parallels another text called Leviticus Rabbah. Rabbi Nachman said in the name of Rabbi Shimon Ben Lakish, right? This is that verse. God, Elohim, ascends, uh, or you said this, Sandra, I think you said this, right? God, Elohim, ascends amidst the sounding of the truah, the Lord amidst the blast of the shofar. Now, in rabbinic, the way the rabbis solved the rabbinic, the biblical problem of multiple names for God, Elohim is the God of judgment. Adonai is the God of mercy. When the Holy One, blessed be He, ascends to take His seat on the justice on Rosh Hashanah, He goes up with the intention of judging strict justice. But when Israel takes up the shofarot, and blows them. The Holy One, blessed be He, arises from the throne of justice and sits on the throne of mercy, for it is written, and the Lord, the God of judge, judgment, right, arises with the blast of the shofar, but He's filled with mercy for them because He becomes Adonai because shofar. So this becomes the central drama in much of rabbinic literature. Why do we blow the shofar? Who's the, who's the audience? Clearly, God. 
And God is meant to be moved to move from strict justice to mercy. No wonder the whimpers, the whimpers and the moans is, is begging for mercy. You can see the interconnections here. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over the next uh, uh, couple of texts here. So, so if, it, if it's not directed toward us, ah. why does everybody say, you have to listen to the chauffeur? <laughs> Well, because it becomes expressive of our intention to vis-a-vis God. You want to be part of the beneficiary, right? But that's also part of as the rabbinic tradition uh, develops in time. So you, you have many other texts here. I want to go over where it says medieval rabbinic texts here. That's on page 7. So we've seen already one strand says the primary audience is God. We've also seen this allusion to Satan which we'll come back to in a moment. Maimonides is a rationalist. He's a rationalist philosopher. So this is what he says about the shofar. And you'll recognize this. Even though the blowing of the shofar is a divine decree, no rationale is provided. It contains an allusion to a rationale, that's technical rabbinic stuff, as if to say, here's the purpose. Awaken those in the sleep, those who sleep from you, your slumber and arise from those who slumber and inspect your deeds and return to repentance and recall your creator. <clears throat> those who forget the truth amidst the vanities of time and waste their entire year in vanity and emptiness, who do not benefit nor save, look into yourself and improve your ways and deeds and let every one of you abandon your evil ways of thoughts that are not for good. Maimonides would not like the idea to confuse Satan. Maimonides would not like the idea that God's going to be moved from one seat to the other per se. The purpose of hearing the shofar is to get us to do tshuva, to be introspective, to look inside ourselves, to be self-evaluative. That's one strand of the medieval tradition. I agree with Maimonides. I, I, I think he's reflecting what we said way back on page one, the quote from Isaiah, uh-huh. which is that's number six on page one. Right. Teshuvah. I think that's what Maimonides is thinking. Yeah, okay, but, so now we're going to have three comments, and these become interesting. What did the rabbis in the Middle Ages understand this idea of confusing Satan to be? Rashi, right, if you know on a typical page of Talmud, you have Rashi on one side, and the other side are going to be these common containers called Tosafot. So Rashi says the following, in order to confound Satan, so that he will not confuse you. For when he hears Israel expressing love for the commandments, his words are shut up. This reminds me a bit of... of, uh in Christianity, mm-hmm. that the devil is scared away by the sound of the church. Ah, yeah. okay. So, 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 but, but the, the imagery here is, of course, the, he's still the prosecutor here. He's not the head of a legion of forces of evil. Not here yet. Mm-hmm. And basically, he's going to bring his case against the people of Israel. But the people of Israel are sitting in Shul. They're busy davening, right? What kind of case can he make? They're doing the mitzvahs. Right? They're observing mitzvot. You know, you got no credibility there, old Satan. Well, look at them. God's going to say, I see them all sitting there. Well, I mean, Goldberg's talking to me. Schwartz is talking to Goldberg. <laughs> but we won't talk about that. Okay. Uh, Tosafot, 
have a slightly different, who are commentators on Rashi in some way, they have the following interpretation. Uh, there's a, and they cite the, the words of a 11th century Talmud dictionary uh, following the Jerusalem Talmud, although the, the quote doesn't actually appear in the Jerusalem Talmud anymore, and says the following, I mean, you can't find it, it's not in the versions we have, mm. maybe it fell out. He will destroy death forever, a, a verse from Isaiah. And it is also written, and in that day a great shofar shall be sounded, and they, those who strayed who are in the land of Assyria will come and worship the Lord at the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's a text from Isaiah again. When Satan hears the sound of the shofar the first time, this is again, why do we blow the shofar twice? Remember the answer was to confuse Satan. So when Satan hears the shofar sounded the first time, he's afraid and not afraid. Takes note, but he, but. When he hears it a second time, he says, this surely is the sound of the great shofar that will be blown at the time to come when he will be destroyed. And he's confounded and he does not have the opportunity to prosecute. After a few hundred years, Satan would... He's a slow learner. <laughs> he gets confused every year. But, <clears throat> I mean, that's basically what I'm saying, right? But he, he mistakes the second sounding to think, uh-oh, that's sounding my doom. I got to get out of here. I'm in trouble. I'm not going to be able to prosecute. Okay, so Satan here, so far, is this kind of heavenly guy in the heavenly court. But then we get another interesting comment. This is from a person called the Rashba, uh, the, um, the Shlomo Benadere, who's a, th a 1235 to 1310, a Spanish commentator on the Talmud. There's novellae on the Rosh Hashanah, that text in order to confound Satan. There were those who explained this to mean to subdue one's yetzer, one's inclination. For it is written, when a shofar is sounded in a town, shall the people not tremble? And Satan, according to certain rabbinic traditions already, is understood to be the in, in evil inclination. As a rabbi said, Satan is the in, 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 evil inclination, is the angel of death. But it's really, where is Satan? Within us. So here you see a clear, what I call, interiorization, right, of the whole drama of hearing the shofar. It's to trans, I mean, it's sort of like Maimonides, but it's taking our minds in a slightly different direction of this is meant to move us so that we overcome the bad tendencies we have within ourselves. Last two texts, and we'll stop here. Uh, these, are two, these are two texts from rabbinic sermons, which is a whole genre itself, where rabbis would give sermons. So everything until now is more book stuff, you know, commentaries and stuff like this. This is where rabbis were actually speaking to the community, although the sermons they published were not the sermons they delivered. I mean, there's a whole thing where people would deliver a sermon and then polish it up to publish it. That's a... a, a yeah, same thing. <laughs> so this is from a guy named uh, Rabbi Yaakov ben Hananel Sikoli from Spain in the 14th century. For a person needs to, be, to fear, be agitated, and tremble from Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, Rosh Hashanah. And the blowing of the shofar awakens to be, and, and, 
and the bowling of the shofar awakens to be in awe and to fear, as it is written. When the shofar is sounded in a town, shall the people not tremble. When a person trembles and is afraid, some of the forces of worldly desire, same theme here, Yetzer, will be eliminated, and these are Satan who sinks the persons into the sea of desire. So here you have in a sermonic form that same kind of idea that hearing the shofar is to occasion a sense of fear and trembling. This is Jewish fire and brimstone, which sermons like that, in the traditional time, in the media, in, particularly in Eastern Europe, the rabbi would only preach twice a year, right? Shabbat Hagadol, right before Pesach, and Shabbat Shuva. And it was often this kind of fire and brimstone sermon that were delivered for people. They are being judged, and the shofar is to occasion that. I don't know, but I don't think, I'm just, if, I, let me come back to one, let me read this last text, and I want to come back to that point. How, what is our consciousness? What kind, does any of these themes really speak to us? What happens if we don't really think of God, a God and a God judging us? Uh, and, you know, does any of this work? Or does it become, let's see, you can blow the chauffeur longest and a chauffeur blowing, and that's kind of fun, and it's joyous. Here's a different uh, text. If the true up by itself signals being troubled, right, that wailing and moaning, being sad, and the kia signals joy, then a combination of the two notes, shvarim signals a mind which is somewhere between the other two emotional states. Trua is the most emotional of real trembling, right? Shvarim is kind of like you're upset, and Takiya is joy. If the assumption about the emotions represented by the sequence of Tia, Shvarim, Trua, Takiya is correct, then the custom of blowing the sequence during the Malchiot, sovereign section of the Musaf, makes sense. Malchiot proclaims God's majesty, is welcomed by a completely righteous who can afford to react to these sounds with joy and equanimity, the Takiya. Now here, I don't have time to go into, preachers had a real tough time because, especially when you get to later period, they're itinerant preachers and they were dependent upon people paying them. They didn't want to offend people and say, whoa, you sitters, you terrible people, right? But on the other hand, that was their job, right? So there was a kind of tightrope here. So if you're basically, if you're righteous, the tequila is fine. The completely wicked person, on the other hand, shrinks from such an encounter and is represented by the truest sound, the most frightful of all the sounds here. The great majority of people, right, who aren't wholly righteous or wholly wicked, who fall somewhere between the two categories, view the coming of the reward for their meritorious deeds with a certain feeling of gladness, while trembling at the thought of the impending retribution for the sins they have committed, and thus respond to the shvarim. And thus, for most people, it's the tekiya shvarim tekiya, that captures our emotional, should capture the desired emotional experience, right? This is saying what you should feel on Rosh Hashanah. As the rabbis in the Talmud said, there are three groups of people who are judged. The holy righteous immediately sent to heaven, the whole, this at the final judgment. The holy wicked go down to hell and don't get out of there. And the people in the middle 
actually go down to purgatory for periods of time to be purged from the sin. This is already in the Talmud. And then they ascend to heaven. So that's where most people are, to see themselves as benonim, as people in the middle. We don't have to see ourselves as wholly wicked, and somehow the experience of hearing the shofar blowing should cause that amount of trepidation. But we should have some concern. So this is, you can see here, some interesting rabbinic reflections on moving from, why are we blowing the shofar? God knows what in the, in the Bible, Yom Truah, to beginning to have a sense, seems in the earlier text, God is the intended audience, though there's some allusions to humans. To here, we now have humans being one part of the intended audience. They don't lose God either. I can tell you, I, I wrote another paper on the shofar in the liturgies of the American Jewish liturgies of the last 200 years, which is looking for everything from Orthodox conservative reform, and in the Orthodox Machsarim, there's some very interesting developments, particularly under the influence of Kabbalah, uh, especially Luriana Kabbalah from Spot in the 16th century, where you start hearing about, and if you um, uh, look in these Machsarim, you'll find prayers during the shofar service that are like Yehirat's own prayers. May it be your will, O Lord our God, and what the text often say is that the angels shall take the notes of the shofar and make them for crowns upon your head of the Holy One who's sitting in judgment. And there's all this Kabbalistic stuff which actually dropped out of some of the Orthodox Machsorim until the 70s and now has reappeared like an art scroll. Which, and in even Jonathan Sachs, though he translates it, sometimes the translation does not perfectly match the Hebrew. The reform and conservative reconstruction of Machsarim got rid of all of that idea, well, not until, the conservative still has a Yehirat's own, may, I, may I, the notes of the shofar come before you, O God, right, symbolizing our dedication or something like that. But not this, um, then, and there are texts there about shutting up Satan still in the other prayer book. So it's really interesting when you would really look at what, how even today these liturgies understand the purposes of blowing the shofar. So maybe in our last five minutes, I want to come back to your question. Is all, essentially, you know, a lot of this has been purged. <coughs> but what about the idea of introspection and thinking about the shofar moving us to a little bit of fear, self-reflection. Uh, Would we think that if we hadn't been told about that? <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So, so let me ask you, is there a certain sense that the rabbi's not talking? They, rabbis talk about tshuva. I mean, I assume everybody in this room has heard a rabbi give a sermon on tshuva, on repentance. But did they ever talk about the shofar to move us to self, self-examination, to some sense of... I mean, it's really interesting. But, I mean, I, I, I would say, you know, does the Unatonic Tokev prayer, that's a whole interesting thing. What do people think? You know, I mean, is this outdated, the whole idea of God sitting... Well, it has to be updated. God looks in his computer and adds up, looks in the memory banks and, and figures out what happened this year for you and me. But if you look at the liturgies, a lot of those texts have also revised that kind of... They keep the Hebrew, but they change the English. Or they frame the prayer with additional readings that sort of move away from this imagery of God really sitting and 
opening up the books. And so, you know, do we feel any sense of trepidation or fear or anxiety, to use a slightly different word, beyond the fact that I get to leave Shul now so everybody gets home, I get home in time to get the lunch ready for everybody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but also there's no talking about what Gehenim's like. Ah. You know, so then why should we be afraid? If, I just found out that one of the things... Ah, Gehenim, right, is a hell, or the place of judgment, or purgatory, however you understand it. And you get stuck in boiling feces. Oh, the rabbis are very inventive on this. There's other things, and nobody hears that, and... and Except the page of Talmud, what I said, right, is very graphic about the evil ones who go down to hell and uh, what happens to them there. And the, you know, uh, humans are both imaginatively and unfortunately in practice quite inventive as imagining torture and suffering, right? And the rabbis did it as well. Not perhaps as uh, often and perhaps not as dramatic, let's say, as the book of Revelation, but you find this kind of imagery. But that doesn't speak to us, I guess. Well, we don't hear it. It doesn't speak to us because well, most of us never hear it. Or, or do the preachers uh, recognize this is not... Either they themselves don't accept that idea. I mean, see, they themselves are uncomfortable with it, or, and, or. They also think it would turn off a lot of their congregation. But you can go to certain Orthodox synagogues. That's the question. It's interesting in which kind of Orthodox synagogues we you still hear this really serious notion of Yom Hadin, and your standing in judgment, and your future, your, your disposition of your case for the year is being handled now. And I, I think that's still present in a good number of Orthodox synagogues, with varying degrees of intensity and, and imagery. But it, it, I guess in the liberal Jew, forms of Judaism, right? So the shofar becomes, you know, uh, more expressive of, Joy, happiness, being together, remembrance, but calling us to, that's the interesting thing. Do you ever feel being called to something more than let's all get together and, and have an occasion together? Um, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, mm-hmm. about, about ritual, not specifically about shofar, but he said sacred ritual and holy story are none other than the detritus of the lost encounter between man and the Holy One. So it takes us back to that. Yeah. Any last thoughts or comments? Observations? Thank well, thank you all. And uh, let, me know, let me know after Rosh Hashanah if the experience is any different this year from last. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.